Bom dia! Está começando mais uma edição do programa 20 Minutos. Nosso convidado é Vijay Prashad. Historiador e jornalista, nascido na Índia, é um dos mais renomados intelectuais marxistas da atualidade. Diretor executivo do Instituto Tricontinental, autor de 30 livros, é estudioso da teoria do imperialismo e militante da causa socialista. Prachá tem se destacado nos debates sobre o atual cenário internacional, marcado pela crescente polarização entre China e Estados Unidos, em um choque geopolítico cujo principal evento nos dias de hoje é a guerra na Ucrânia, contrapondo a Rússia, principal aliada da China, contra o governo local, o governo de Kiev e as forças da OTAN, Organização do Tratado do Atlântico Norte. Também são relevantes os estudos e análises de Prachad sobre os novos processos latino-americanos, marcados pela contraofensiva das correntes progressistas na região. Morando parte do ano em Santiago, no Chile, é um observador privilegiado e um ativista dedicado dos acontecimentos regionais nos últimos tempos. Vamos aproveitar essa entrevista para passar em revista alguns dos principais temas do mundo de hoje. Good morning, Mr. Prashad. Thank you very much for accepting our invitation. It's another to have again your presence in 20 minutes. It's a great pleasure for me to be with you, Breno. Thanks for having me back. Mr. Prashad, several analysts consider that the Ukraine, the Ukraine war represents the definite rupture of the unipolar order. Russian military reaction against NATO would be proof that the US-led imperialist system could no longer impose without resistance the unipolar order that emerged with the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. Do you agree with this point of view? Well, the first thing I'd say is that U.S. political, economic, social and military power is very complicated. Elements of that power have been deeply weakened over the last five years, if not the past decade. And the war in Ukraine has shown that that weakness um, is real. It's not just a theoretical weakness. So what are elements of the weakness? The first weakness is the United States suffers now from the end of political unipolarity. That's absolutely clear. We can see that with the emergence of China trying to craft its own position in world affairs. China's foreign minister, Qigang, went to Africa, visited four countries, Benin, Gabon, and so on, talked to several um, political leaders about the need for more collaboration and not great power rivalry. He was followed by the U.S. Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen, who went to Uh, Zambia and Senegal and so on. And she had the United States position, which was don't deal with China. So politically, we already see the uh, demise of U.S. unipolarity. Lula's appearance again 
on the world stage is another indicator because Mr. Lula, we know, is a great internationalist. And already at the meeting in Buenos Aires, the CELAC meeting of the community of Latin American and Caribbean states, Mr. Lula has made an impression. So we're seeing political um, domination of the United States lapse. Economically, we also see the U.S. in some trouble. It's unable to contest the fact that China, for instance, comes to the table in its conversation with other countries with a very large project on the table. You know, it says, listen, we can invest money for this. We can invest money for that. United States shows up and says, look, you have to stop making deals with China. That's not an economic power issue. That's something else, which I'll get to. So economically, we already see that there's a real um, demise in U.S. unipolarity. The IMF is not as effective as an institution. The World Bank not effective as an institution because they are being contested. China is, for instance, the largest bilateral lender in the world. The IMF, therefore, is now facing a challenge. But in terms of military power, the United States is unparalleled. It can destroy any country with its military force. That doesn't mean it can actually secure more than, say, some battlefield wins. We saw that in Afghanistan. We saw that in Iraq. It can destroy countries, but it can't necessarily control them. Ukraine, it's interesting. U.S. is interested in pumping arms into Ukraine, having the Ukrainians hold the front with Russia. But nobody can win that war. That's very clear. Ukraine is not going to prevail. It's not going to invade Russia. For God's sake, it's not going to cross the border and so on. So the United States has military power, but it doesn't have the political power to make that military effective. Where the U.S. really continues to have a kind of unipolar dominance is in information power and to some extent in cultural power. You know, look at it this way. United States most likely was the foreign um, agent that destroyed the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Uh, Mr. Biden had bragged in a press conference, we're not going to let Nord Stream 2 continue. We're going to take care of it, was the phrase he used, almost like a mafia expression. We're going to take care of it. Then Victoria Newland of the U.S. State Department also told Congress, we're going to take care of it. After Nord Stream 2 was destroyed mysteriously, nobody needs to investigate that. Victoria Newland goes back to the U.S. Senate and Ted and, and says to Ted Cruz, well, now Nord Stream 2 is a pile of metal at the bottom of the sea. And she bragged that, well, it's being taken care of. But by whom? Well, the information power of the United States is so complete almost, Breno, that the question is not raised. And if you have the indecency, indelicacy to raise the question, somebody might say, well, you're a conspiracy theorist. So, yes, it's true. The unipolar domination of the United States has become extremely fragile. But where the United States remains in a kind of unipolar situation, Breno, is in information power, in the, the profession that you and I have. Very difficult to drive an agenda on reality when they control reality in a particular way. Mr. Prashant, how would you characterize Russia's military operation against Ukraine? A defensive or an aggressive war? An imperialist or anti-imperialist 
intervention? It's a very good question that you've asked. And let's put it this way. This is part of the kind of ideological dispute about what's happening in Ukraine. Let's uh, be very clear. Russia is a country that was humiliated in the 1990s. When in 1991, the Soviet Union collapsed, Boris Yeltsin, who effectively was the instrument of that collapse alongside Mikhail Gorbachev, but really Boris Yeltsin as the party secretary um, in Moscow and so on. Boris Yeltsin effectively allowed U.S. think tanks, U.S. foundations, U.S.-based financiers like George Soros to come and bankrupt the country and construct a system that allowed a few billionaires to take over state assets. You know, it was the United States advisors that created the oligarchs in Russia. Very interesting, the word oligarch. Nobody calls Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos oligarchs. It's only Russian billionaires who get called oligarchs. Anyway, this was a U.S.-made system. Okay, everybody knows that. And the country was humiliated. Up till the financial crisis of 2007-2008, Russia's political class had been asleep, including Mr. Putin, who was the president in the first period after um, Yeltsin from 91 till about 2007. You know, he was not pushing forward a global agenda. During the time of the financial crisis, Mr. Putin went to the Munich Security Conference in 2007. And it's at Munich that he said, we will allow no single master. And then the Russians put on the table that NATO must not come any further east towards the um, Russian border. What the Russians said then, Breno, is important to remember. Number one, the U.S. had unilaterally withdrawn from the anti-ballistic missile treaty in 2002. Russia saw that as a threat. Secondly, the United States violated the handshake agreement made between James Baker and Edward Shevardnadze, who was then the, the foreign minister of the USSR, that NATO would not expand beyond Germany's eastern border after the unification of Germany. That handshake agreement had been violated. So a combination of these two things, anti-ballistic missile and the handshake agreement violation, number of countries in Eastern Europe joining NATO, uh, put a lot of pressure on the Russians. They feared that the United States was going to come and undermine their quote-unquote sphere of influence. Right after that, there was a conflict in Georgia between the Russians and the Georgians over border regions. Well, that was to some extent sorted out. Part of that had to do with a lot of influence of the Europeans in Georgia to kind of peel Georgia into the European project. Um, so things were pretty stable after that, Breno, in fact. But then we come to something interesting in Ukraine, which becomes the next instrument of, or the next theater of the conflict. The United States pretty openly comes and overthrows a government which was not pro-Russian per, per se, the government that was overthrown, in fact, was pretty independent. It has it wanted to be part of Europe and part of the Russian sphere and so on. But the United States overthrows that government in 2014. Victoria Newland, whose name I've already mentioned, walking around the Maidan saying, we want X, Y, Z to be the next president. This person should meet him. I mean, it's crude. You know, that, that audio tape is crude where she says, this is what must happen. It was clear to the Russians that the United States had a project in Ukraine. But then when Trump 
unilaterally withdrew from the Intermediate Nuclear Force Treaty, the INF Treaty in 2019. It was at that point that Putin said that Russia needs security guarantees. Because, look, the question isn't Ukraine joining NATO. The question is the United States placing intermediate nuclear missiles in Ukraine. That was unacceptable. So in that sense, was this war provoked? Of course it was provoked. Certainly was provoked. Was it a good idea for Russian troops to cross the Donbass region into the rest, rest of Ukraine? Well, that we'll understand in five years. You know, we, we, it's very difficult to understand that now. There's a stalemate. People are getting very badly. There's a lot of damage being inflicted on Russia's forces and on the Ukrainian people. Nobody seems to be making, you know, enormous gains despite the entry soon for the spring of German tanks from Poland and Germany and, and, and also U.S. Abrams tanks. Tanks. What are they talking about? This was not a debate about tanks, Breno, because, you see, when the Russian army entered, you saw the images of tanks entering. But the tanks were quickly destroyed by the Ukrainian counteroffensive. Russia right now is not sending its tanks in. It's firing missiles. So this question of getting Germany to accede to have their tanks sent to Ukraine was not about the tanks. It was about making sure the West was politically united in its campaign against Russia. When the war started, Mr. Prashad, the vast majority of experts in military sciences thought it would be resolved in a few weeks. But after near a year of Russian intervention, the conflict seems far from over. Would Russia have made an strategic, strategic mistake with the so-called special military operation whose costs could be harmful to Moscow? What did Russia enter the conflict to do? It appears to me that they had some pretty specific aims. Number one, that the Donbass region, Donetsk and Lugansk, was going to have not only autonomy, but some closer relationship to Russia. I don't think they realized that these republics wanted to accede into Russia, but that's what happened. Secondly, to ensure the stability of the Crimea. And that would include the question of water supplies. You know, right after the Crimea voted to join Russia to leave Ukraine, the Ukrainian government cut off water supplies to Crimea. This has not received adequate attention. Um, they essentially cut off water to Crimea, which doesn't have any other source of water apart from what it would get from Ukraine. Well, the Russians at great cost built a bridge across the Black Sea that came to Crimea and they would supply water by truck. But one of the things that the Russians were keen on was to build a land bridge through Mariupol to ensure water supplies into Crimea and to make sure that Crimea's situation was not going to be changed. This was, it seems to me, the war aims. Russia entered and negotiations started immediately on the Belarus-Ukraine border and in Ankara in Turkey, Ankara, the capital of Turkey. By the end of February, 24th of February, the Russian troops entered. By the end of February, that means four or five days later, we learned that there had been an interim agreement between Ukraine and Russia. And then the, the, the war may have stopped in early March. That's what we heard. Very soon thereafter, when rumors began to come that there's an inter, interim agreement, Boris Johnson, at the time Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, 
um, not the last prime minister, but the two previous, because they keep having new prime ministers. He arrives in Kiev, goes on a walk around town with Vladimir Zelensky. Then a few days later, U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin arrives, goes on a walk with Mr. Zelensky. And they basically pressure Vladimir Zelensky not to make a deal with Russia. Why? Because as Lloyd Austin said in a public press conference, our aim is to weaken Russia. That's what the U.S. Defense Secretary said in Kiev. Um, Very interesting. So there could have been an agreement. Maybe these Russian, you know, what demands they had might have been negotiated down. That, okay, you can't keep the whole land bridge, but we will guarantee water supplies. That's what happens in a negotiation. These things could have been could have been negotiated down. Russia might have been able to attain guarantees, no nuclear weapons in Ukraine, etc., etc. But the West was simply not interested in any deal because they want to use this, as Hillary Clinton said at the time on a television program, they want to use this as Russia's new Afghanistan. Let it grind down. The West will back the Ukrainians from behind. Let the Ukrainians suffer. But let's use this as a way to grind down Russian power, to weaken Russia. That was said directly by Hillary Clinton on a U.S. television channel. And I actually think she's a pretty informed person. Seems to me that that was their agenda. Therefore, I'm not sure it was a miscalculation of the narrow aims with vis-a-vis Ukraine. But certainly... Russia may have miscalculated the absolute, um, you know, uh, obsession that the West has developed to, quote unquote, put Russia in its place. Do you think we are on the uh, uh, third world risk? It's a very good question because some people and I know that the French philosopher Emmanuel Todd already said this in the French media. Emmanuel Todd said. Um, that we are already in World War Three. Now, you know, th- this is an interesting comment because it begs the question, Breno, what do they mean when they say things like World War One, World War Two, World War Three? There's something ridiculous about this term. You know, the African continent has seen a number of very, very bloody wars uh, take place in the last 30, 40 years. In the Congo, millions of people have died in a war that's included Rwanda, That's included Uganda, that's included Kenyan troops, included various European and U.S. special forces and so on. Millions have died. Nobody called the Great Lakes War in Africa, World War Three. Why not? Many countries were involved. The great powers were involved and so on. Looks to me that they they use this term to describe Europe's wars. You know, World War One, World War Two. My ancestors, my grandfather fought in World War Two. My relatives before that fought as part of the British Indian Army in World War One, but our contribution to those wars is gone. You know, you'll never watch a Hollywood film with Indians and Africans and others fighting. It's always going to be, you know, Americans and Europeans and not only Americans, people from the United States, forget from Brazil or anywhere. But um, the issue is, is this World War Three? When they use that phrase, what people are thinking about is the question of nuclear bombs. And the question of major escalations between the most powerful nuclear armed countries, that's on the table. I actually feel that this is a bit of a risky situation that the West has put the world in. 
I mean, I am very much in favor of negotiations. I'll give you an, ex- an example of why I say the West has created a risky situation. About 20 years ago, the eight countries that border the Arctic Circle created something called the Arctic Council. Seven of them now happen to be either NATO members or near NATO members. In other words, Sweden, Finland, and so on, near NATO members. Well, they've basically shut down the Arctic Council. Why? Because they say we don't want to be on it because Russia is there. So that one of the very important mechanisms or institutions to have dialogue across, say, the Arctic and to prevent or at least debate the militarization of the Arctic is being closed down because the West wants to isolate Russia. Is this a good idea? Russia is a major power in the world. It is a nuclear power. It is not going anywhere. And the Russian people simply don't want to return to the humiliation of the 1990s. That's the reason why they will not permit a regime change. Maybe Mr. Putin will resign, but there will be no regime change. And the mood, the patriotic mood in Russia, is not going anywhere. That's why the West has to calm down, has to back down. You cannot, quote unquote, weaken Russia. You cannot create regime change there without bringing us to the precipice of the use of nuclear weapons. That's the reason why I'm looking forward to people like President Lula inserting themselves in this dialogue more and demanding negotiations. You know, I was very happy to see at the inauguration of President Lula that high representatives from Russia and Ukraine came. He met both. That's very good for the credibility of the role of Mr. of President Lula when he enters this, this situation. You know, very few world leaders in the South have the kind of, um, of gravity that President Lula has. And so, I mean, from my perspective, just speaking now as a complete individual and maybe a little bit of a fan, I'm very much hoping that President Lula goes into this situation, calls a peace conference, makes a big deal of it. Because, you know, the U.S. is not going to do it. The Europeans have once again shown that they are totally camp followers of the United States, including Olaf Schultz, couldn't hold his ground on the leopard tanks. The Russians are not in a mood to lead a peace uh, situation. The Chinese just can't do it. They're closely associated with the Russians. Only a power in the global south can set the table for real negotiations. And amongst the countries in the global south right now, the only person with that kind of reputation is Lula from Brazil. That's it. How solid is the is Russia and China alliance? Well, you know that from the 1950s, Russia and China had a serious dispute. It was called the Sino-Soviet dispute. And they had a border dispute. You know, parts of the Soviet Union went into China, like Xinjiang province, for instance, used to be part of the Soviet Republic. In early 60s. In early 60s. They had an armed conflict on the border. Well, since the, um, the collapse of the Soviet Union, Chinese and Russian officials have been uh, making some contact with each other, particularly with the rise of the Taliban in Afghanistan. That actually improved the communications between Russia and China because both saw the Taliban as a common problem for Central Asia, for the Xinjiang area and so on. So they collaborated. Russia was very much part of the process that created the Shanghai uh, Cooperative Organization in 2001. Everything changed 
after the world financial crisis, when um, Russia and China became partners with IBSA, India, Brazil, and South Africa, and they created the BRICS. That really changed the communications between the two countries. And I must say, after Xi Jinping became the premier of China in 2013, he really pushed the agenda to settle the border dispute, which they only settled about three years ago. It's pretty impressive that the strides they made. Having done that, a couple of things I want to say about this, uh, you know, this, this kind of new arrangement between the countries. Firstly, they began to trade more. And as Russia found itself under sanctions from the West, it began to sell more energy to China than it did to Europe. So the diversion of energy was important. But Russia is still exporting to China raw materials and importing from China finished goods. So their trade situation is very uneven. Uh, this is what Putin has repeatedly talked about at the um you know, at the St. Petersburg economic meeting, which is a little bit like the World Economic Forum for Eurasia. Um, Xi Jinping and Putin met there and so on. But this is a, an issue of concern. Secondly, they have been increasing their military cooperation. But you will notice that Russia and China do not have a military alliance. There is no military pact. In other words, if Russia is attacked, China is not under treaty obligation to join. They have a security agreement. That's a lower uh, form of of, of arrangement. So, yes, they have a very close relationship, but there are some issues that are, I think, important to bear in mind. This is not an alliance of some kind. You know, this is a close relationship. After all, they both are part of the Eurasian landmass. They are very keen to communicate together, to have economic integration. Russia has been keen to watch and learn what's happening with the Chinese Belt and Road. Look look at it this way. Russia is not a member, full paid member of the Belt and Road project. You know, they are watching and and observing. They are, they are participating. They, they help the Chinese in Central Asia where Russia continues to have a lot of influence, but it's still, there's still daylight between them. You know, it's not one, it's not a military alliance like NATO, anything like that. So people should not, I think, you know, exaggerate the closeness of Russia and China. They have close ties, but they're not in some sort of tied together alliance. Do you think that uh, with uh, President Xi Jinping, China has changed its strategy? Yes, uh, dramatically. In fact, I mean, I'm going to say something that uh, might be strange to say, but prior to Right after the fall of the Soviet Union, um, the Chinese recognized that there was some fragility in their project, you know, that they were not able to advance the technical capacity of their of their industry and so on. And under Deng Xiaoping, they made a bet to basically, you know, go out there, get the best technology, open up their labor. And the whole Shenzhen miracle was grounded around Deng's vision, use these free trade areas to bring in technology. Well, in the 15 odd years since Deng did that in 1992, Chinese science, tech and manufacturing, you know, advanced dramatically. Their ability to produce high speed rail and so on came dramatically. It was an incredible increase. At the same time, under Hu Jintao and so on, previous premiers, there was a bit of a too much 
emphasis given to allowing capitalists to thrive in the country. Xi Jinping enters in 2013. Very interesting development. You know, he comes after the financial crisis. He comes after a number of experiments within China to return much more firmly to the socialist path. You know, the experiments um, done by people like uh, Bo Xilai and others, you know, in the various provinces. And what, what Xi Jinping does, which is interesting, is he tries to pivot the Chinese economy away from reliance on the United States. Belt and Road was part of that. Eradication of absolute poverty was part of that. And then trading with countries like Russia, India, you know, the big BRICS countries that were not part of Belt and Road is part of Xi Jinping's vision. Um, and we've seen this vision in reality. Like, for instance, there's a new uh, foreign minister of China, Xi uh, Gan, and his first port of call was Africa. It wasn't to Europe or the United States. He went first to Africa. So Xi Jinping has a different project. It has to do with not allowing China any longer to be the manufacturing center for U.S. and European capitalism. Now they want China uh, to, in a sense, stand on its own. In terms of uh, ideological uh, questions, issues, uh, do you think that there is a Marxism, Marxism rebirth in China? <laughs> well, you know, when she comes to power, he um, says that all universities have to create some sort of institute or school of Marxism. Well, so they set them up. I visited many of them in 2018, and I was very interested, Breno, to find that faculty at these institutions would tell me, listen, we don't have enough faculty to teach, uh, you know, Marxism. We don't even have enough books and so on. So we got into a discussion, you know, what does it mean to teach Marxism in a country that is, effect, you know, is, is, is legally identified itself as part of a socialist project? It's different than teaching Marxism at Columbia University, you know. What does it mean in Tsinghua? It's important to recognize that most of the faculty in most of the universities in China remain highly influenced by Western social science, highly influenced. You know, they are Weberians, they are Milton Friedman economy, economists and so on. Particularly in the 10 odd years before um, Xi Jinping comes in, most of these faculty members got their PhDs in the West, you know, most of them. They return to China to take up high-level jobs, work in the central bank, and so on. So there's a real interest in, in let's say, a U-turn back to Marxism, or maybe an advance to Marxism, depending on your perspective. Um, but it's going to take time. It's going to take time. I was recently in communication with people in Vietnam. I don't know if you saw recently Vietnam, the president resigned, who had been the prime minister during the period of liberalization in the 1990s. The head of the Vietnamese Communist Party is conducting a major anti-corruption drive. Part of this anti-corruption drive, and this is what I was learning from them, is also ideological. They are also worried. I mean, I asked the senior leader of the ideological department in Vietnam, what's the most popular book in Vietnam? And he said, look, please, you know, let's not talk about it. I said, please tell me. This is about two, three years ago. I said, please tell me, what's the most popular book? He said the most popular book in Vietnam, as far as he knows, is Michelle Obama's autobiography. And I thought, well, that's a good answer. And so, you know, 
there has been a slip in many of these countries. And I would like to say it's not only Vietnam and China. Many socialist projects have slipped when it comes to ideological work. And a lot of emphasis has to be paid on that. I mean, you talk about Brazil, you know, um, it was jubilation to see uh, Lula de Silva come back and become the president. But I have had really alarming conversations with people in the Workers' Party and so on about the ideological weakness of the people inside the parties and the kind of strength with which they are able to put forward or dispute, um, you know, with bourgeois forces about what should be the way forward for a country like Brazil. I mean, we are in the world, Breno, in general, in a serious ideological dispute, a battle of ideas, let's say. And to strengthen the ideological forces, that is just about the most important thing, in my opinion. After, of course, settling the question of hunger and settling the question of health care and housing and so on. Let's, let's detail something you have comments about. Much is said about the decline of U.S. imperialism. This is not a new conclusion, but it gained greater force with the growth of the Chinese economy and Russia's recovery in the 21st century, in addition to the damage caused by the capitalist crisis that began in 2008. Are the United States, after all, close to losing or not its hegemony over the planet? When I wrote a book last year with Noam Chomsky, we spent a lot of time, Noam and I, discussing how best to put this, you know, how to best categorize this situation. And the word that he and I held on to is fragility. We believe I think, and we share this in common after a great discussion, we believe that U.S. hegemony, U.S. power is fragile. We believe that it is, in fact, declined precipitously, you know, to the point of collapse. We believe it's fragile. And I think at a time of fragility, world history has taught us powerful countries that are getting fragile and, and that see themselves as declining act with great force in order to preserve their power. And in a sense, what we're seeing in Europe today is an act of the United States acting with real force to prevent the fragility from leading to decline. You know, it was very clear that Europe had begun to integrate more with Russia and China. And in a sense, the Ukraine conflict had been used by the United States to pull the Atlantic Alliance, you know, NATO to some extent um, and so on, closer to the United States, not let Europe create an independent foreign policy or an independent economic policy. So we, we are of the view, you know, Chomsky and I, that this is a very period of great fragility for U.S. power. But that doesn't, fragility should not mean um, that it's not capable of acting with great viciousness to preserve whatever power exists. After, after all, Roman Empire decline took around a thousand years. Well, you know, it's interesting you say that because I went back and I had to order, because I don't have a copy of it, Edward Gibbon's book, just the, just the abridged version, because it's too long to read the whole yeah. thing. The abridged version of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. 
and I'm telling you, Breno, I was actually surprised by exactly the point you made, which is how long it took for the empire to collapse. I mean, and did it collapse? Because it morphed into Byzantium on one side, Rome on the other, you know, it went on forever. Well, this is a lesson. Now, if we're to believe Giovanni Arrighi, the world systems theorist who argues that as history progresses and gets more complicated, empires last for shorter periods of time, but they control larger amount of space. Well, if we accept Arrighi's proposition, which I think is interesting, but maybe a little too cute, um, you know, I think it's true that the United States has had the largest footprint of any empire, but I'm not sure that it's going to have the shortest life. I, I, I don't imagine that that's the case. I talk a lot to people in the Chinese intellectual world, you know, people who are making the concepts for Chinese foreign policy, scholars and so on. I spend a lot of time interacting with people there and their view is wait and see. It's very interesting, Breno, the Chinese scholarly world and even political world, they don't look at the world in one year increments, five year increments, even 20 year increments. They take a much longer perspective, 100, 200 year increments. When they look at it that way, they think, well, eventually the United States cannot maintain its uh, stranglehold on the planet forever, but it's going to take time and we are prepared, you know. It's actually interesting. It's the reason why the Chinese government didn't get uh, taken in by Nancy Pelosi, U.S. speaker, um, her provocation of traveling to Taiwan. They didn't do anything stupid. They let her come into Taiwan and leave. You see, they could easily have done something to match the provocation of the United States government. No, look, Taiwan is part of China. We don't you want to provoke us. Go ahead. We'll make strong statements, but we're not going to act on it. There's a kind of maturity that comes with this long-term perspective. But do you think that the, the, the United States could provoke a kind of Ukrainian situation in Taiwan? Yes, and I think it's actually not something that we should be too cavalier about. Let me give you a few examples. Number one, the United States and Australia have a very close military alignment. There's a military base in northern Australia um, and also a giant satellite listening place where the Five Eyes Network uh, is located. Well, in this military base in northern Australia, the United States has just put a lot of money to expand the base because they are going to house B-52 and B-1 bombers, both nuclear-capable bombers in northern Australia. This is already there. I mean, I wrote a story about it. It was pretty shocking to me to learn um, how brazen the U.S. was. They were like, even though Australia is a signatory of the Treaty of Rarotonga, which says that no nuclear weapons should be in that area, the U.S. is going to place nuclear weapons in these military bases, air, air bases in northern uh, Australia. That, that's an alarming situation. Secondly, um, the U.S. is already contesting against China in several of the islands, uh, island nations that are near Taiwan, like the Solomon Islands and so on. Um, there was a very, I mean, it was almost a kind of a political clash between the U.S. and China and the Solomon Islands. Finally, the U.S. has increased its military uh, equipment transfers to Taiwan. Now, look, firstly, the U.S. government accepts 
that Taiwan is part of China. They've accepted that since the late 1970s. At the same time, the U.S. passed a, a law in in the late 70s called the Taiwan Act, where the United States provides weapons and gives diplomatic support to Taiwan. You've just recognized China, People's Republic of China as the China, and then you're continuing to do this as an irritant against China. Okay. Recent months, the United States increased military aid to Taiwan. This is alarming, very alarming. And why people are alarmed is that the United States having departed, as I mentioned earlier, from the Intermediate Nuclear Force Treaty, the INF Treaty in 2019, the worry is that the United States will place mid-range nuclear weapons in Taiwan. This is the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962 played up played again. But look, it's not just Taiwan. President Yoon, who's like a Trump character in South Korea, has invited the U.S. to place nuclear missiles in South Korea, which would be a disaster. I was in Seoul recently where um, the U.S., Japan and South Korea were conducting naval exercises in the Sea of Japan. And the People's Democratic Republic, North Korea, fired a barrage of missiles into the, the Sea of Japan. If a nuclear weapon is placed in South Korea, North Korea is going to find that unacceptable. So there is a way in which the United States is poking around both Europe and Asia, you know, the Eurasian, whether it's Ukraine, South Korea or Taiwan, poking around, trying to provoke these countries. This is a period of great alarm for for people, you know, who want. I mean, that's one of the reasons why the um, Bulletin of Atomic Scientists just said they set the doomsday clock time. It was 100 seconds last year, 100 seconds to midnight. Midnight is catastrophe. 100 seconds to midnight. Just a few days ago, they released the new figure. It's no longer 100 seconds to midnight. It's 90 seconds to midnight. We are creeping closer and closer to midnight. I don't want midnight, Breno. I would like to be back to somewhere like 12 hours for midnight, please. Antes de continuarmos, eu queria lembrar a vocês que tanto o site quanto o canal de Ópera Mundi no YouTube oferecem seu conteúdo de forma livre e gratuita. Mas para sustentarmos nossa atividade jornalística, é indispensável o apoio financeiro de nossos leitores e espectadores. Esse apoio pode ser dado de seis formas. A primeira, através de uma assinatura em nosso site, no endereço operamundi.com.br barra apoio. A segunda inscrevendo-se como membro pagante em nosso canal no YouTube. Basta clicar em Seja Membro e escolher um valor no nosso cardápio de opções. A terceira, contribuindo através do Super Chat. A quarta, contribuindo através do Super Sticker. A quinta, escolhendo a ferramenta Valeu, Valeu Demais, quando assistirem aos nossos programas gravados. A sexta, através do Pix. Essa é a sexta forma de colaboração. Nossa chave nessa modalidade, nossa chave no Pix é apoia.operamundi.com.br. Vou repetir, nossa chave no Pix é apoia.operamundi.com.br. Além dessas cinco formas de contribuição, lembre-se sempre de dar like, de clicar no sininho e de compartilhar nossos programas com seus amigos e nos seus grupos. A mais eficaz de todas as armas contra as fake news é o jornalismo de qualidade. Apenas o jornalismo de qualidade coloca a verdade acima de tudo. E esse jornalismo que o Opera Mundi busca oferecer todos os dias depende da sua contribuição, do seu apoio, do seu engajamento. Não importa o valor com o qual possa ou deseje 
colaborar, ele será sempre bem-vindo. A imprensa independente depende da sua audiência, depende dos seus leitores. Contribua! Mr. Prashat, Latin America is experiencing a second progressive wave in the 21st century. All six major countries in the region have come under left or center-left command. Brazil, Mexico, Argentina, Colombia, Chile and Venezuela. What are the consequences of this scenario for the historical influence of the United States in the region? Well, um, let's wait and see, because there are some historical divides already playing out. At the CELAC meeting, for instance, President Gabriel Boric of Chile um, attacked, you know, the left governments. Um, he, he launched an attack for no reason, really. I mean, it was for domestic consumption, perhaps. But what role did that play? Um, that was an odd scenario. So there are some divides. You know, there is a coup ongoing in Peru. Uh, only, in fact, I would say the strongest statement came from Xiamaro Castro of Honduras, who herself had, you know, in a way experienced a coup when her husband, uh, Mel Zelaya, was overthrown in 2009. Uh, she made a very strong statement. but The other countries seem to sort of accept that this has happened and Pedro Castillo is in prison. Um, so there are still some kind of divides that are there. There is no united flank of the left. Do you think, do you think there isn't programmatic and ideological unity among the left forces that command the main Latin American countries? I mean, I'm sorry to say that I think that, and I don't want to exaggerate this because I know that people like you and I don't like to put too much stake on an individual. But I'm sorry to say that there is nobody leading um, a kind of project that would unify people of different left um, traditions. You know, nobody has been able to come out there and place a kind of united front of all the governments. You know, AMLO has not done that from Mexico. Uh, Gustavo Petro is in a way too modest to even attempt that. And Lula, I suppose this is a return to CELAC. So let's see what happens. Uh, but really nobody has come out there and said, look, we have a unifying, we have these unifying features. Let's get behind them. Let's drive a unified project. You know, whatever it might be, you know, uh, opposition to coup d'etats, uh, increased South American regionalism. Maybe it is about the climate. You know, what um, Petro was talking about. Let's Let's pledge to not allow... Or let's have a nuclear-free zone, a real nuclear-free zone, etc., etc., etc. What's the common project? Who is leading that project? You need to have that. You know, the merit of Hugo Chavez, who died 10 years ago this year, uh, the merit of Mr. Chavez was when he first arrived on the scene like a meteor, um, he came with a project, you know, the Bolivarian project, integrate the continent. And it was good for Lula at the time to have Chavez come out there to his left, as it were, so that Lula could come and, you know, put certain institutional things on the table, you know, CELAC being one of them. Uh, in fact, strengthening Mercosur, Unisor, all of that stuff, you know, those institutions could be strengthened on one flank while Chavez went out there and said, look, this is a united front. What was the key issue for Chavez in the united front? Stop the free trade area of the Americas. That united the countries into a project. Everybody agreed. 
They didn't want to be second fiddle to U.S. corporations through the FTA. So you will well remember the meeting held in, um, you know, at uh, Mar del Plata, you know, where they came and said no to the FTA. Everybody was at the table. What's the project today? So I would say first to your question, there are lots of internal divides, but internal divides are not new to any continental project. The new thing is that I would say what is required is somebody to lead a common project. Now, the question of integration is interesting. But is there a common project to be led? Yes, I would imagine there is. And here's here's what I would say. The first project to put on the table is that Latin America, not just South America, but Latin America must be allowed to make its own decisions in terms of trade, development, and so on. That this great power rivalry between China and the United States must not impact the decisions made by Latin American countries. That if a country, El Salvador, wants the Chinese to develop a port, they cannot face the wrath of the United States, including the IMF, to prevent that from happening. Why can't countries have a more non-aligned approach? So I would say, here's an issue, a non-aligned approach to the new Cold War that seems to be hotting up in other parts of the planet. That's one. Look, it's interesting. At the time of the SALAC summit, the U.S. Southern Command head made a speech where she said that South American countries must provide weapons to Ukraine. Now, what does what does this got to do with the pressing issues of people in South America, of hunger, of migration crisis, of this, of that, you name it, you know, you put the whole list down, Breno. Where does sending arms to Ukraine factor in? to the sorrows of people in, in countries across South America. But that's the U, that is the U.S. trying to draw South America into a conflict that is not South America's, frankly. This is not a South American conflict. It's for somewhere else. You've got to make your own agenda. So that this issue of having a kind of non-aligned position is actually not a theoretical question. It's a way to tell the United States, look, Focus on, we are focusing on our problems. Okay. We want to deal with the war on drugs, which is not only impacting Colombia and so on, it impacts Brazil. Look at the favelas where the drug crisis has in, increased uh, the gang power and so on. I mean, this is not acceptable. That's the, gotta be the attitude. But more than that, look, when, um, Fernando Haddad wrote in the Sao Paulo newspapers about last year about the importance of a regional currency, It was talked about as a project of South American integration. You know, I mean, that was, this is an interesting thing on the table. Now, I'm not saying that it's going to be easy or that, you know, it's going to, it's like a magic bullet of any kind. But let a conversation start about mutual development agendas. Right now, Argentina is struggling, lurching from debt crisis to debt crisis. The IMF is not able to construct an exit from debt. Can there be a regional solution to the debt crisis? You know, this is exactly the kind of thing I remember Fidel Castro talking about in the 1990s. You know, the need for regional conversations about regional problems to create regional solutions. Um, that's what should be on the table. I think what's happening with, say, Petro, you know, not Petro, Boric criticizing Nicaragua and so on. These are distractions. You know, I feel like I want to tell Gabriel, you know, Gabriel, don't distract from the pressing question. The issue of mining 
and um, and natural resources in in Chile is related to every single country. Every country in Latin America is facing the problem of how to handle their natural resources, including Brazil. Have that as a common debate. You know, what should be the common understanding about the natural resources? How should you deal with the mining companies? How should you deal with the Dutch disease? Should there be a, a sovereign wealth fund for all of South America? These are real pressing issues of, of debate and, and advancement. Not what is the opinion of Gabriel Boric about Nicaragua. For God's sake, what a distracting thing to have uh, taken the CELAC meeting into. Let's talk about Chile. Perhaps the most impactful progressive victory in the region was that of Gabriel Boric in Chile. After all, for the first time since the overthrow of Salvador Allende, the left reached the, Pala the Palacio de la Moneda. Less than a year later, right-wing parties got a majority to reject the new constitution and the president's popularity is on the ground. How to explain this situation? Well, firstly, the constitution question is pretty easy to explain. Um, the government didn't start promoting the constitution until it was written. So the campaign to approve the constitution only begins after it was written. The campaign to reject the constitution started the day that the constituent assembly went into session. So they had a, over a year advantage of going out there and destabilizing the constitution. Secondly, Chile has a strange, um, you know, election system. Previously, you know, the idea was that you, you had to, re you had to, if you registered to vote, you had to vote. That was the thing. But you didn't have to register. Well, to, vote. to vote if you are registered. Exactly. Then they changed the law to if you that you are registered at birth, but you don't have to vote. That was the second thing. Now, stupidly, the Boric government for the vote on the constitution put the two together and said that everybody who's registered had to vote. That means they made voting mandatory. Now, you don't test such a consequential vote as a vote on a constitution with mandatory voting. So they miscalculated the whole thing. There was a large section of people, mostly, you know, people who had gone in the direction familiar in Brazil of Pentecostalism and so on, who basically don't feel the state should do anything. They want their relationship to be God. The state should not get in the way. So those people never voted. There were large chunks of people who never voted because they didn't see the state as important to them. Now you force them to vote. They voted against the constitution. So there were lots of strategic and tactical errors, if I can put it like that. But on top of all that, I interviewed Giorgio Jackson when before they took office. And Jackson was his first, basically, number two in the first year. And now he's been removed. But Jackson told me before the, they started governing that, look, you know, we are going to run a first year of symbolic politics. Uh, because basically he claimed they couldn't do anything other than that. So they do a series of symbolic things. I asked him, I said, you know, the whole cycle of protests that starts, that brings Boric's government into being, starts with young school children who are fighting for um, lowered cost of public transportation. So I said, why don't you just make these subways and buses free for school children? If you have a school 
identification, you don't have to pay to ride the subway. You go to school for free. You know, it seems to me a completely rational way to award the people that bravely fought against the Piñera government and so on. Seemed to me. But no, they, they didn't want to take any kind of left risk. They wanted to stay right down the center. So a lot of symbolic things, a lot of press conferences that basically said nothing. I must say it's a missed opportunity in one in that regard, that there are some policies. You know, I'll, I'll give you an example. You compare this to other governments. Most left governments, when they come to power, say, we're going to take care of hunger. You know, the minimum work that the left must do is to ensure that people who are starving in our country no longer starve. But they didn't even put that on the table. You know, like eradication of hunger should be the absolute bare minimum. Why left government? Liberal governments should come to power and say, we are going to eradicate hunger. This should not be the priority of the left, you know. But liberals have forgotten about all this. Liberals now believe in free market capitalism. But at a minimum, the left must do that. So they didn't come with a strong agenda. You know, they came with an agenda. Let's not get into trouble. So very early on, they started attacking Venezuela, attacking the Nicaraguans and so on as a way of not getting into trouble. Well, that's a bit disappointing. Um, and his popularity went down. Why? Because the whole left flank is unhappy with him. And then the left liberals are unhappy because nothing has been met. And then the collapse of the constitution really disillusioned people. So now this government with other left political forces and people of the right have decided no longer should the constitution be made by democracy. We'll now nominate people. Parties will nominate people and we'll come up with a constitution from above. Imagine that. Look at the scale of the defeat. But and now after new constitution re rejection, uh, Boric's government is going more and more to the center in order to reorganize uh, its influence over Chilean society. See, it's true that that's a good way to look at it. It's a it's a quick march to the center, maybe even the center right. Um, that's true. On the other hand, that's not necessary. You see, when you're losing popularity on the left, the issue isn't go to the right. The issue should be do something that captures people's imagination. The, it's a cliche, you know. I, I'm I'm on the right. I'm losing popularity. I go to the center. Tariq Ali, the uh, British uh, Pakistani um, editor of New Left Review, calls this the extreme center. He says that everybody goes running to the center, which is an extreme center. It's not really the center. It's basically where the banks are. You know, everybody goes running in the shade of the, the big banks in the plaza and goes saying, okay, okay, I won't touch you anymore. I won't annoy you from the right or the left. I think much more interesting for a left project when caught with a lack of popularity is to be imaginative, do imaginative things, uh, put things on the table, uh, go and try to help students, uh, help people who are, you know, one simple thing again would be to rethink the question of trans public transportation in cities like Santiago. They cost money, a lot of money. Is it possible to make them cheaper? In fact, Is it possible to remove cash from the public transport? Let people just get on and off the trains. Um, it's actually not that expensive because, you know, you, you've got other ways to finance this. You know, if you get more people to ride public transportation, 
especially the subway, maybe they won't drive their cars. You know, maybe you'll have to get more trains. You can find a way to do that and so on and so forth. Do something imaginative. Take a risk. But instead, when people start going to the center, Breno, they get less and less innovative. They get more and more conventional. And then, you know, what's going to happen is that the next election, the right is going to come rearing back. We've seen this over and over again. I have a curiosity. Uh, what's the opinion, what's the role and what's the situation of the Communist Party inside Boric coalition right now? The Communist Party in Chile is the strongest party in Boric coalition, in the Apruebo Dignidad coalition. And the Communist Party of Chile is very supportive of Cuba and Venezuela. How are the Chilean communists leading with this kind of Boric behavior? Living with is a very curious phrase. You said, how are they living with? Um, there are, of course, as in all parties, great divides, splits even, you know, within uh, ideological divides. Um, one section of the party is pretty happy with this in the sense that they also believe that there are quote-unquote problems of democracy in some of these countries. You know, there are members of the Communist Party in Boric's cabinet who make these kinds of comments on Facebook and so on. And in the press, they talk about, you know, the democratic deficits in some of these countries. It's a curious analysis of, of, say, Venezuela particularly, where there have been more elections than I can even remember, you know, uh, Every time I turn around, Venezuela had... Remember in the uh, early 2000s, I mean, there was an election every well, year. I think we, we had in Venezuela 25 electoral process in 24 years, 23 years of Chavez in government. Imagine that. Okay, so one, almost one, one a year. A year. Yeah, one a year. I mean, to say there's a democracy deficit in Venezuela is basically to repeat the U.S. State Department's talking points. It's not a credible statement. But there's a section of the of the communists and, you know, people also in government from that party that say things like that. There's another side that completely disagrees with them. But they don't want to also break with the Boric government and weaken it because they understand that a country like Chile is basically a right-wing country. You know, it, it basically is captured by capital and that there's been very little um, de-pinochetization of the, of, the, of the country and society um, since the end of, of the dictatorship. I mean, look at it this way. The largest lithium mining company in Chile is owned by Augusto Pinochet's son-in-law. Now, just because you are the son-in-law doesn't mean you should lose your company. But these are people who participated in the dictatorship. They never paid a price for it. You know, um, I, I don't, it's interesting. I'm not saying that all these countries, Brazil included, needed to set up a Nuremberg, you know, where you basically try everybody. I'm not saying that. But even in Brazil, you know, uh, the dictatorship lasted 21 years. There was no real truth and reconciliation. You know, people who were part and parcel, who made money during the dictatorship, were not made to quote-unquote pay it back. You know, uh, they were allowed to keep the ill-gotten gains of the dictatorship. Um, in Argentina, there was no real 
reconciliation with the past. In Chile, even less reconciliation with the past. And so a lot of people who benefited from, uh, you know, that dictatorship of Augusto Pinochet uh, remain in control of various things. And that's the reason why uh, Boric's opponent caste could quite openly talk about how he liked the dictatorship. So did Bolsonaro. You know, this is not unusual. Bolsonaro also talked as if the dictatorship of 21 years, which ruined so much of Brazil, was a great thing. You know, Mr. Cast openly is, comes from a Nazi family, you know, openly talked about the dictatorship in Chile being great. So the section of the Communist Party understands that, in fact, it's a right-of-center country and that, you know, they have to advance an agenda. So they're going to have to tolerate the juvenilia of a part of the Chilean left. It just has to be tolerated for now. Because also that part of the Communist Party that is in fact the stronger part is not strong enough by itself to act. It needs to act in coalition. I mean, I would like to say that therefore it is acting in a kind of mature way, given the kind of balance of forces available to it. But even if it's a mature set of behavior, it's still very difficult to fathom uh, how the party is going to hold together these two wings. That it's able to do it now as I think a lot to do its own with its own very deep and quite powerful and attractive history. And by the way, this is the 50th anniversary of the coup d'etat in Chile. September 2023 is going to be 50 years since uh, Salvador Allende's popular unity government was removed. And I will be very interested to see um, how the Boric government commemorates the 50th anniversary of the coup. Let's change the country. What's going on in Peru? Did ex-president, ex-president, former president uh, Pedro Castillo attempt a coup d'etat and was he deposed for that reason? Or did the coup came, come from parliament controlled by a conservative majority? You know, you mentioned that it was extraordinary that Gabriel Boric won in Chile. It was even more extraordinary that Peru Libre, um, which was not Marxist, even really... Leninist and Mariategist party. Yeah, you know, with also not that deep roots in the country, was able to prevail against an oligarchy that is nasty. I mean, the Peruvian oligarchy is matched in its nastiness only by the Colombian oligarchy, you know, which was willing to uh, pursue a war from the 1940s all the way till... Um, just a few years ago. In fact, it's not over yet. Uh, they've been willing to pursue this, you know, for decades, that great cost of human life just to maintain their oligarchic power. Peru was the same. I mean, I went to Peru first in the early 1990s to cover the story of the decline of Sendero Luminoso. Um, and I was quite struck by the racism of the elite, you know, um, the deep roots of racism that seemed to structure the Lima elite. Anyway, um, it was amazing that Pedro Castillo came to power. The moment he came to power, when he won the election, before he was even inaugurated, I saw the attempt to suffocate him. Our friend Hector Behar, the great historian of Peru, um, former guerrilla fighter, you know, wrote a terrific book about his time in the uh, guerrilla in the 1960s. His book is from 1965. Hector Behar was put forward by Pedro Castillo as his first foreign minister. You know, a man of great learning, wisdom, and so on. He lasted one week because the oligarchy 
through the legislature simply would not allow a Marxist to be the foreign minister of Peru. So Hector Bihar lasted one week as Pedro Castillo's foreign minister. What I'm trying to say is that, in fact, the coup against Pedro Castillo starts the day he wins the election. Um, what's happening is there's too much focus on the day on, of the coup itself, you know, when he was actually arrested. In fact, he had faced a coup from the beginning, very similar to Salvador Allende. When he wins the election in, in 1970, the attempt to overthrow him starts before he is, in fact, inaugurated. In fact, there's an assassination of a general in, 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 uh, in Chile, way to get the liberal general out of the way in order to pave the way for a coup. But the coup was forestalled for three years because of the depth of public support for Salvador Allende 50 years ago. Well, now 53 years ago. In Peru, they attempted the coup against Pedro Castillo right from the beginning. But toward the end, he had also made enormous concessions to the right, enormous concessions. And he was feeling more and more boxed in. The legislature, knowing that Pedro Castillo was on the run, attempted to impeach him several times. In fact, the morning of the of the arrest and overthrow of Pedro Castillo, he comes to his office, he meets his team, he meets the lawyers, and they say they have a big Excel sheet on the table, and they say, we've gone through the numbers, the impeachment vote is going to fail. That's what they told him. He had already become convinced that this was not going to work. He made a press conference saying, I'm suspending the parliament. And that was taken now by the United States government as a great opportunity to overthrow him. Because after all, just a year ago, the U.S. government sent a former CIA, um, high official of the CIA to become ambassador in Peru. Very interesting woman. She has an interesting history. We looked into her history. Um, you know, she knows what these things are. Well, there was a lot of pressure on Mr. Pedro Castillo from the embassy, U.S. embassy. Consistent pressure. But he made a big mistake because, you know, he was told you'll win the impeachment vote, but he just lacked the confidence in a way. And he said, no, we are going to suspend parliament. He made a press conference right there at around noon. And by two o'clock, his own guard arrested him. This is very interesting. How is it that his own presidential guard arrested him? That means that the military had already decided who to place around him. You know, that these were not people who were loyal to the Constitution or whatever. They were loyal to some generals. Uh, I found this interesting. This is a repeat of what we saw in Bolivia when General Williams Caliman came to see Evo Morales and said, you better leave because otherwise we're going to overthrow you. And Morales sort of looked at his guards in the room and it was very clear that the game was up, that these guards were not going to defend him, that Caliman and company had already put in place people loyal to them inside the presidential palace. We saw the exact same thing happen with Pedro Castillo. In this case, he tried to make a run for it and they arrested him. I understand. Which are your expectations with the third Lula's administration? You mean my rational expectations or my emotional expectations? Both. <laughs> Emotionally, I very much hope that Mr. Lula is going to do great things for us. Principally, I would like to see the South um, absent, in a sense, China, because, you know, China is, of course, part of G77 plus C plus China. But in the rest of the South, I would like to see really good, sensible, left liberal leadership, uh, you know, happen there. 
I know that India has been trying to create a kind of uh, lane outside subordination to the United States. It's come out in the Indian reaction to the war in Ukraine. I know that the African continent, number of countries have been trying to articulate a kind of non-aligned position. Um, I can see that. But I think that many of these countries lack a credible person to come in there and provide the part. So emotionally, I very much hope that on the international stage, Mr. Lula is going to help revive a kind of center-left BRICS, revive the space of non-alignment. You know, I don't know exactly how this will happen, which is why I said that it's an emotional reaction. Practically or theoretic, you know, with a more grounded sense, you know very well that he is going to face a difficult internal situation. Um, the parliament, the national, you know, deputies, the Senate, they're going to be adverse to him. So that's going to be a tough situation for him internally. But I very much hope that Mr. Lula is still going to be able to push through legislation internally to tackle hunger, to tackle racism. I was so happy to see that he had created an indigenous ministry. These are not symbolic issues. These are consequential. You'll remember at the start of the pandemic, Mr. Bolsonaro basically condemned the indigenous to death by not developing a rapid sources of water. You know, you're saying wash your hands to prevent the pandemic, but where's the water for that? For which reason um, trade unions took Mr. Bolsonaro to the International Criminal Court, charging him with genocide on this exact issue. So Mr. Lula setting up a indigenous ministry, I think is very important to raise these issues, to see what Sonia Guajajara is going to say and do and what kind of project she will bring to the table. I'm very happy that he picked somebody of her caliber uh, to lead that, that office. So, I mean, that's there. The most interesting expectation is there for the regional question. And there I'm interested. I mean, again, he has chosen a person, a friend of mine, person of great integrity, Fernando Haddad, to run the finance ministry, a very complicated ministry in Brazil. Uh, Brazil is a country where, you know, you remember the first Lula administration, he had to write a letter to the bankers to basically mollify the Brazilian Paulista Avenue um, big building owner type, you know, bank characters. Well, let's see what Fernando is able to do, not only in Brazil, but regionally. And I think I, I'm, you know, I'm watching to see how this integration question goes forward. I think currency might not have been the best place to start this, but it is where the beginning has come. I think I, I'm interested to see if a regional bank can be created, uh, which would help in a sense uh, not just for transfers and managing trade, but also help develop new kinds of intellectual capabilities for people who run the finance ministries of different countries. I'll tell you what's happened in the last 40 odd years or maybe 50 years is that alternative caliber of people, you know, people who are not trained to imagine the economy must be run in a neoliberal way with austerity, IMF funding, etc., the intellectual confidence of the class of people who have to run finance ministries across the global south has withered. So that when you walk into a finance ministry in most countries in the global south, you find people, the, the, the most dominant people are those with a Stanford PhD. You know, they kind of dominate the scene. They become the cutout to the IMF and so on. We really need to think about creating regional um, banks as a place to develop 
new thinking about development coming from the south new theories of of how to create paths of development this is something i know that they are very interested in china um my institute tricontinental has just made a, a very interesting arrangement with a chinese journal called when how zhong heng uh, we are going to publish when how zhong heng in spanish portuguese and english but we are also going to contribute articles in the chinese journal and the editor editor yan ping said to me look we are interested in hearing what are the debates in the global south around questions of development what are the paths of development and i unfortunately said i i don't actually think we have very rich debates one of the reasons to create a regional central bank again it's not just to do the technical work of managing trade and perhaps you know reserves and so on also it's to drive an intellectual agenda you know what sepal did from santiago chile in the 1950s you know the economic commission of latin america was a key place to innovate policy ideas most of them happened to be brazilian you know sankal um later of course uh, uh, his i think it's his birth anniversary or death anniversary ray mauro marini you know people like that the kind of development theorists i mean a little bit also but more to the right was cardoso uh, your former president but you know oswaldo sankal very important person who developed the sepal school of thinking alongside raul prebich there is no place like that today in south america and I, i hope that mr lula and fernando haddad would build a kind of regional central bank where new thinking can be incubated of what should the development path be how should um, external finances be dealt with and so on so i really hope you know i'm making a plug breno because i know that you talk to all the top leaders please tell them that what we really lack is a, a place an institution to develop thinking about how to develop mr prashad on march 5th almost 10 years ago hugo chavez president of venezuela from 1999 to 2013 died what is his legacy for latin america Firstly for me it was an immense personal loss because I met him several times traveled with him in India in 2005 I've just written the forward to a beautiful book written by Jorge Ariaza Monserrat former executive former vice president of Venezuela after the death of Hugo Chavez very close confidant of Chavez and the book is about it's a chronicle of the last few months of Mr Chavez's life because Jorge Ariaza was with him in Havana in um 2012 uh, he was there with him when uh, mr chavez made the speech to the venezuelan people from miraflores palace in december 2012 he traveled back with him to havana and so it's a beautiful little book um a chronicle of the last few months um hugo chavez was an incredible person because apart from everything else he loved people i mean i'm convinced that a, a leader of the of the left has to love people you know you have to love listening to people learning about their burdens or finding a way to solve them you know he was always curious about everybody around him and he wanted very much to solve the problems that people were bringing to him you know he was very determined like that and he would be very quick i mean one problem was he lived on coffee i, I don't know if you know anybody who's been around him knows that chavez was always carrying like you uh, coffee and just drinking coffee all through the day 
energizing himself to solve people's problems. It was amazing. What was his legacy? His legacy is hard to put together. Um, but five, six years before he died, he was talking to some people. And he said, you know, I just read a book by, because he read everything. He said, I just read a book by Plekhanov. That's George Plekhanov, the famous Russian Marxist. He said, the book is called The Role of the Individual in, 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 in World History. And he said, I agree with Plekhanov. Individuals are not worth their salt. You know, it's about processes and building this and that, like a Bolivarian process and so on. People around him said, you know, that's all very well, um, Commander. But you are an extraordinary individual. You know, you are not, you know, we, we are the first to say that you are extraordinary um, because you want to complete the mission of Simon Bolivar. You're an extraordinary individual. And he was like, no, no, I'm just a, I'm just a soldier. He was an extraordinary person. I mean, he was the light of many people's lives. Um, every time I go to Caracas, I try my best to make it to the F4 military barracks where he is interned. There's an eternal flame that burns there. And I think very much that that's almost, and I'm not a religious person. I'm a Marxist, but I think that that's the soul of Hugo Chavez, you know, out there. His legacy is incredible because it made an entire generation, if not more, commit themselves to the emancipation of people from terrible ills and injustices. You know, every generation needs a reminder from someone, somebody. You gotta take a grip. You can't just you know, go out there and struggle to improve your own life. You have to improve the lives of humanity. And Chavez is one of those people that comes every generation or so and reminds us to do this. And I think that, to me, Breno, that is the enduring legacy. It's not, you know, Alba or this or that or the other. It's that he was a reminder for a generation, you know, commit yourself to making the world better, full stop. Mr. Prashad, we are coming to the end of our conversation and I would like to ask two questions that I always ask our guests before saying goodbye. Which book would you like to suggest to our viewer is the first question. The second, which movie or series could you indicate to those who follow us right now? Well... I've come very well prepared for this because I've been on your program before and I know that that's the last question I'm going to get. And because I know you, Breno, and because I think that um, this would be an interesting thing to say, I'm an editor of a publishing house in New Delhi, India called Leftward Books. And we were very happy to do the English edition of Lula's Truth Will Prevail, which was a long conversation that he had with a group of Uh, important um, Sao Paulo-based intellectuals and publishers. But I find this a good book to read now again. Why? Primarily because it is a good indication of what Lula went through from the right wing. And I believe that whereas Mr. Lula was always a man of the left, I believe that the persecution of Lula has radicalized him deeply. And that came through in this book. You know, I don't think, I think the West is, Western leaders, the G7 leaders will misunderstand Mr. Lula to their peril, that he is not going to be, um, you know, conciliatory to them any longer because they humiliated him. And, and you can feel that in this book. When he says truth will prevail, he's not just saying about the truth about his own case. He's talking about truth in the world. So I highly recommend this. Movie 
and serious? Well, the movie was the easiest one because I picked uh, Jean-Luc Godard's Breathless, A Boot de Souffle. Why? From 1960. I feel, well, one, Godard died last year. He was a terrific movie director and all his movies are worth seeing. But the reason I like Breathless a lot, and you remember um, Jean-Paul Belmondo plays the character of Michel, great actor, early movie of Belmondo. Um, they are basically nihilists the two main characters in the film. They're alienated from society. It reminded me a lot of a 1956 book written by a U.S. sociologist called Paul Goodman. This book is called Growing Up Absurd. Um, it's a very important text for um, the, the student movement that developed in the 1960s because Goodman argued that young people were feeling alienated in their society. I think we are in a position like that even now where young people are sensing a great alienation. Jobs are not available. There's a great despair about the future and so on. I think it's a good idea to go back and perhaps reread Paul Goodman's Growing Up Absurd, develop some concepts to understand today's reality. But if not, just go watch Breathless. It also happens to be a beautifully short film. And that is serious to indicate... You know, I was um, a great fan of Anthony Bourdain. I, I very much like to watch food shows, very much like. Anthony Bourdain was somebody I met a couple of times. He was a terrific person. You know, he took you to Palestine. He took you all over the place and showed you how people ate in order to show you their culture. Well, recently I watched a series I really enjoyed. I had a vicarious pleasure. I don't know if you know the American actor Stanley Tucci. Um, you know, he's a character actor. He's been in Woody Allen movies and he's been in, um, you know, I think Brian De Palma movies and so on. Anyway, if you see him, you'll know him because he's been in a lot of famous movies. Okay. Stanley Tucci did a really, really interesting. He is an Italian American, you know, so there's that. Um, and so he made a series, which unfortunately only the first uh, season was out. The second season was stopped because of the war in Ukraine. But the first season is called Searching for Italy. And it's charming. You know, he walks around. He goes to Naples. He finds some interesting. The first episode is on Naples where he finds a kind of pizza that's made in the old way. I find, I don't know about you, but there's a lot of stress. People like us, we read political news all day long. I don't get enough time to enjoy culture and life. I just sometimes find these well-made shows about food and food culture. I find them very relaxing. And Stanley Tucci is a wonderful host. So if you get a chance learning from Italy, Stanley Tucci, or just go back and watch the master, Anthony Bourdain. Boy, he was the master. Mr. Prashad, I want to thank you very much for your time and for this very interesting and informative conversation. Thank you very much and good luck. Thanks a lot, Breno. See you in Sao Paulo. See you. Também agradeço a todos e todas que assistiram a esse programa, em especial aqueles e aquelas que puderam fazer contribuições financeiras ao nosso site e ao canal de Ópera Mundi no YouTube. Sem vocês, nosso trabalho não seria possível e não faria sentido. Um grande abraço a todos e a todas. Música